Hi, and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Bob Hotard in San Antonio, Texas. This is Jim Jones in Brookline, Massachusetts. Not quite feeling like uh, on the show Survivor yet. We haven't started eating bugs and insects to survive, but with the curfew in place from nine to six going on right now. Who knows what can happen, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm awaiting, I'm awaiting in the mail my certificate as a master of hunkerology, it seems. <laughs> You know, there's there's just a, a lot going on, obviously. I am very much struck by the statement of our Surgeon General in the news in which he refers to this as our Pearl Harbor. I guess the first thing I ask myself, what does that mean? Who's invading us? That's what I thought. I, I said, you know, that, that was an interesting analogy. I guess I think many things, the first thing that comes to mind is war, wartime situations. But the other thing is when I ask myself, what's, what's he mean? And I think he might be referring to this is a life-changing event. This is the beginning of a change in how we live. After 1941, things were going to be different. I think he's trying to say that. I think he's also trying to say that this is war that demands the war effort, things that we do differently. I know we originally started out thinking about what's happening on our southern border and immigration into the United States. But as I was reading this, I'm thinking, you know, this also has a lot to do with migration itself. Going back to the war and after Pearl Harbor, One of the things that changed is we were seeing, if you permit me to perceive it in this way, these migrations that were going to occur within the United States. These were the migrations of women in huge numbers to working in factories. These were migrations of young men into military camps after they were drafted and then eventually migrating over to Europe in troop ships and airplanes and and, and huge numbers. I want to share a a quick personal story of my father, may he rest in peace, uh, told a story of when he was living in uh, New Iberia, uh, Louisiana, I believe. I don't think they had moved to Jennings. He uh, signed up for the war. The first thing they had to do was get on a train and uh, I think come over to here, actually, to Lackland Air Force Base, and then eventually went to the West Coast and, and to, to go through basic training. But that migration of in the 40s, that was not like hopping on a plane and jetting to L.A. That was a, that was a major event in itself, when you think. I, I mean, I, I just have to share and agree with you. That was definitely a migration of men to different parts of the country to get ready for war. And then you mentioned the other of what what or we've talked about of women and what they were doing. Yes, uh, the migration, my language, my choice of words, to move from one place to another movement, which is what 
immigration's about, except it's probably more about moving across borders to permanently reside someplace. But I think these two certainly can be associated with each other and not just thinking about the southern border in and of itself. One of the other things that I see based upon this Our Pearl Harbor is this whole idea of how things are going to change and how we are going to have to change along with them. We've probably thought in terms of migration before as, well, those snow geese that are right now in the Finger Lakes, the Finger Lakes in New York involved in migration. Or I see, you know, locusts and from right now moving from Uganda to Somalia, they're crossing borders, basically. It's the largest group of locusts in 70 years, and the people can't really fight them because they can't go out because of the restrictions due to the coronavirus. Mm, interesting. So this word, these words, immigration and migration, to me, can be used interchangeably in some ways. And there's one more also that I have to mention, because with the war, there will be negative effects, and that is during the war after Pearl Harbor, when we interned the Japanese, mainly the ones who were living on the West Coast, Mm -hmm. we were putting them in internment camps, and they were United States citizens. So there were some civil rights injustices occurring as well. Much to consider when we talk about this topic of immigration and migration and movement in general. Probably when we put this topic list together for our first season. And we thought about immigration, as you mentioned, you know, four or five months ago, we were thinking Southern border, we were thinking border walls, but that's still an issue. And, and when we're looking at, you know, some of the headlines today, those things are, or, or events or news that it's really still happening. It's just not making the, the headlines or getting the coverage that it was before. 10,000 migrants expelled in three weeks is one report. The actual coronavirus pandemic is just slowing the migration into the U.S. But what about, you know, what's happening to immigrants that are being detained here? And we talked about that even on the, on the last episode. It's certainly both poignant. It's both, you know, a appropriate a topic, but it's also... Um, something that we have to look at with with new eyes. And so I wanted I wanted to mention I came across this article. Actually this this person, uh Dr. Carla Brisenko, if I'm saying her name right, she got her 15 minutes of fame back in February when uh, she was kind of a professed Democrat that actually attended a, a Trump rally, but that kind of put her on the spotlight. But I went and looked at one of the things that she actually, what she does, so to speak, for a living, and the things she talks about is some of this kind of neuroscience. And she mentioned something when we talk about current events, that we process information at 11 million bits per second through our five senses, taste, smell, touch, etc. But we only think at a rate of 40 bits per second. That's a huge gap. That's a huge gap of, you know, what we're able to process in our brains versus what's coming at us all the time. And she mentions, I thought this was a a good quote too, decisions are made emotionally and justified rationally. The point being that there is just so much coming at us and now it's even heightened because 
I guess there's also that fear element that's, you know, the, it's the virus, it's the coronavirus. So that's kind of tinging, if you, if you may, or if I may, everything that we read or influencing everything that, that we're taking in. Well, you know, I'm pathological about the news anyway. I probably now, over past weeks, have more news feeds than Meryl Streep has accents. But I am telling you that because what you just said about how we absorb information from what is fed to us, the gap is in some ways widening for me because as I age, I don't feel that I can absorb as much when I'm reading or listening or hearing as I used to. So maybe I try to compensate for that by thinking that I can, again, have the the eyes, the window to look deeper into some of these issues. One of the things that recently struck me about this original topic of immigration was that even immigration to the United States has changed because those countries in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, are closing their borders because of restrictions due to the coronavirus. So in many ways, the effect of that means that the Border Patrol, the government, may be pulling agents back from along the border because there's a decreased demand, but also because of fears of exposing more agents to the coronavirus, which might be spread along the border. In terms of the migrations that are occurring in the United States, it's pretty hard not to read the newspaper and not see or hear in the news how people are exiting from New York City. Residents who are going either to be with family and now be in homes that are outside the state. One of the reasons that we have some monitoring on the borders of Rhode Island and Massachusetts to identify these people who are migrating out of their state. We also had another one recently, which was kind of controversial, and that was every spring, and we know about this in Texas, my home state, your home state, when we have these millions of college students that migrate to Padre Island or the beaches of Florida for spring break. And there was a lot of criticism about these migrations, which are annual migrations. They're like those snow geese in the Finger Lakes, you know, these annual migrations, because they were just not even make, paying any attention to this idea of self-distancing. So that migration was occurring. Of course, maybe one of the largest is the fact that there are so many millions of students across the country that have migrated from schools into homes. They've moved from schools into homes. And not only that, they've migrated from learning in the classroom with a teacher that you can see into online learning. Now, I may seem to be stretching this whole idea of migrations, but I was reading in the paper the other day and to describe what's happening at the Berkeley College of Music, a renowned music college here in Boston, the director of academic, vice president of academic affairs says that they have these 2,000 classes that have now, the clients of the school have had to migrate into online. That was her exact words. I think that I'm not exaggerating too much to think about these movements that are occurring as being migrations. I look out of the streets from my fourth floor condo, which I have not left 
in a couple of weeks now. And I look on the streets and I can see Boston. I can see Brooklyn. I'm thinking, where are the people? They had to be someplace. Oh, I see a few people out once in a while. We have a restriction now, which is self-imposed in the, in the city to walk around with a mask. And I see a few people. But where are all the people? They had to move someplace. That, to me, is the question embedded within these headlines that we're reading. Where are they moving to? And I'm fascinated by that because myself, I never used to think much about the homeless population in the city. But where did they go? What happened to them? You know, cities are like organisms. Organisms are in motion and they're moving. but these cells, they begin to migrate and move other places in the body. And we have that, if I can make that analogy, we have that happening here. But the big question is, who are these populations and how are they moving? And especially if they are underserved populations, the homeless or the poor, what's happening to them? What's the responsibility of government in this era, which is like our Pearl Harbor? You mentioned the the students, and I, I think the tendency is for someone to think, well, yeah, oh, they're all moving home, but there's th- hundreds, if not thousands, of students that that can't go home, or there is no home, or their home is outside of the United States. They're an exchange student, or or they're just a a, a student, an international student, if you will. Where where are they now? And and you we've seen the the stories too of, you know, people are just they're finding places to live, not necessarily their first, second, or third choice, but how is that changing our society? That is an effect of, of this migration. Also, you, you mentioned the, the homeless and the underserved. There's just so much to take in and to, to think about. I definitely think we're, we're onto something here. Looking at it as a migration, is one part of the lens, if you will, but the other, the other part of it is, you know, what's the meaning of it? Where is this going? What is this going to, what's the effect that this is going to have? You, you know, you look out, you say, where, where are the people? And they are inside, but how are we going to continue if we're restricted for a long period of time? How does this play out? And I think those are the questions that are being asked quite often now. You know, we have these histories of epic, epic migrations, not to mention the migrations of people coming across the Bering Strait into North America. The migration we call Manifest Destiny. What a grand name that was to Mm -hmm. apply to the movement West. Or the great migration of African-Americans in the early teens of the 20th century up until the 1970s, the great migration up to Chicago and cities in the north for jobs, not to mention the immigration, the migration of people into the United States during the great migration waves of the 1800s. It's fascinating to think about all this movement that we can't often see. I have a personal experience because having taught in China, I know a lot of Chinese students that are not going to go back home because there will not be a graduation, but some of them are accepted into graduate school and they want to remain here until the beginning of the next semester, whenever that begins, because they're accepted into graduate school and they're going to go for master's degree to American universities. If they were to fly back to China, 
if they were to migrate back to their own countries, they would be worried, especially in China. When you get off the plane, you don't self-isolate there. You are taken in a bus, as I am told by Chinese friends, to a migration center, a center where you are detained for two weeks. Mm. And there are people that are also worried, if I did that, would I be barred from coming back into the United States? So this whole idea of movement is restricted. But you know, there are these unseen people that we may or may not know about. I think of the theater audiences, the people that have subscriptions for plays, for drama, for the opera. They're migrating now also online because they don't have that access anymore. Music artists too, correct? Right? The That's true. We're, we're That's true. Yes. Paul Simon and Edie Brickell gave a concert in a blank in a corner of a room with nothing around them. They have to find new venues. You know what else is pretty active is the black market. Exactly. They have shifted because certain items that they dealt with before that were probably illegal, now they're dealing in huge quantities of PPEs and other supplies that people need. And that's moving. You know, we can't see this. We know it goes on. We've heard these stories. We might see it in a movie. But it's these movements that are occurring that, again, I refer to as migrations. Look at what's happening right now. We are in the midst of a campaign for an election that's going to be in November 2020. We have no idea how that might unfold, but we're talking about ideologies that move either in our country from left to right or somewhere in between or from right to left. There's no difference between these ideologies of liberalism or conservatism. What was occurring in Europe when there was the Enlightenment, when there was the Renaissance, and ideas during that era moved into other countries and other continents. Or maybe, probably because I'm watching from the Philip Roth novel on television right now, fascism rising in Europe and that concept moving to the United States, where we had an American Nazi party, where we were having rallies and people saw that as a movement, and in England too. So this whole idea of shifts or movements or migrations is fascinating to me and maybe one of the ones that we don't yet know the consequences of will be economic migrations. How many people that were in the middle class, if you were to look on a piece of paper and they were considered the middle class because of their wealth, their income, etc., how many because of the coronavirus and this crisis are now possibly thinking about they may be migrating into a lower class socially and economically. This is amazing to think about, I think, when framed in that context. And that's my window right now. That's where I'm looking right now when I think about that. So, but but another current event I, I read where Sean Penn is trying to save lives by providing free drive-through coronavirus testing in California, and that's great. But we're hearing more stories, even uh, of restaurants, of top-of-the-line, uh, high-high-end restaurants, now are providing drive-through meals. And so, are we becoming a drive-through economy? How far will that go? How much will that proliferate throughout the 
the, the coming weeks and through, through this coming summer. You know, it's almost like we're going back to when we used to have the, the sonic drive-in, you know, food places would have uh, where you could drive up and someone would come out to your car just like we're, we have with uh, with groceries now, curbside pickup. But you also mentioned the politics. Yes, we have the election coming up, but how are the two conventions going to change? That's what I'm fascinating and, and anticipating because one is the process of how delegates now are going to be counted or that whole whatever happens at a convention. Who really cared about conventions before? Well, if you were very either for or against, maybe you might watch one or the other, or maybe both if you're interested. But now it's going to be this huge focus of what are the Democrats going to do? What are the Republicans going to do? Will it be an, an equal process? Whereas up until this time, you know, aside from choosing where it's going to be and it was covered by all networks. It was broadcast. That's not going to happen this summer, more than likely. It's not going to be the same way. And, and how is that going to change what goes on during the convention, that process? Whereas before that was kind of, oh, those are political people, delegates, yeah, or caucuses. I don't really understand it, but, you know, uh, it's going to be Biden or in the past, you know, it's going to be Trump or Obama or whoever it was going to be at the, at the time in that particular convention. I'm wondering if there will be, well, there has to be change. That's a given, but now it may be even more democratic and less controlled or more controlled. Well, this raises the issue even before we get to a convention, it's about primaries that are still yet to be held, and they've already been affected. More democratic, that primary, it was that more democratic because people were in feeling restricted because they didn't want to go out and get in line because they feared the coronavirus. Was that contributing more to democracy because there might have been people of color, African-Americans, Latinx, that were not going to show up at those primaries because there was a question about their status or because people in that community where the voting was allowed was too far by transportation for some populations to get to. So yes, there is that, but there is also, again, an unseen political issue here in terms of movement and migrating. And that is when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, what is going to happen to the people that supported him? There have been those people that said they would never offer any support for Joe Biden. Can Bernie create a movement? Can he gather up his group, his forces, his movement to shift, to migrate over to supporting a candidate that they didn't favor during the primaries. I can't even begin to explain how these types of unseen movements are occurring that we're not even aware of, or we have no way of knowing how much they're going to shift the United States into looking a whole lot different, having a different identity. Personally, again, I myself have some experience with seeing how migrations can affect countries. 
Every year in spring during the Lunar New Year in China, they estimate that about 440 million people get on trains, mostly trains, public transportation of trains or buses, and they migrate to, according to the tradition, their hometown villages, the villages, the places, usually in the western part of China, in the countryside, where their families, grandparents, parents originated from. Being there during that time, being there, being pushed aside by what I would consider these grannies trying to get on the train and me, the reluctant American, wanting to be polite and stand in the line, and they weren't having it because they were pushing at me because they were part of these actual hordes of people that were moving across the country to go to different places. To celebrate the, the Chinese New Year, the, the Lunar New Year? To celebrate the New Year, just as people want to go to homes to celebrate Easter, just as people, now the Hajj is canceled, but the people that want to go celebrate Ramadan, the people that want to celebrate now Passover. I mean, these are, are, are people that will now be restricted. My INS experience, Immigration and Naturalization Service, working down in Washington during the early 2000s, I saw a lot of what was occurring on the border. But then there was also after people got across the border, how they were eager to move into major cities because that's where the jobs were. In the 1920s, when there was a revolution going on in Mexico, my own great-grandparents immigrated across the border and lived in the San Antonio area where they settled and found jobs. And our, it was the epicenter of where our family, the Cisnero side of our family, was born. And these are all the types of things that today are still occurring, but maybe more so because of this virus and this whole idea of how we are moving around and changing locations, either ideologically or physically, because of what is happening. We talked last uh, time in the, in the previous episode about law enforcement and first responders, the, the medical community as well, that the people, if you just think of the immigration centers with detainees today all along our, our borders, and the medical community, they're the ones basically taxed now with treating infected uh, detainees. They're the ones running into that danger. They're the, they're the ones uh, dealing with that situation. And as you mentioned, and it's a possibility, as more and more agents may be pulled out, more medical personnel will have to be the ones that have to face that, that situation. You know, this whole idea of how we are dealing with some of the dilemmas that have been created, either about medical help assistance within the detention centers, or some stories that I've read recently, are really challenging. We have a community in the Boston area called Chelsea, and many of the Latinx immigrants that live in that community have lost their jobs, cannot afford to make their rent payments. And in addition to that, many of them, because they are here without the proper papers to enter the country, have a lot of fear. So the issue is the dilemma presented to the government, the local government and council in Chelsea, how do we, on a humane level, provide for people who can't go out and buy groceries? They can't even afford masks. 
So there's a decision to be made about dealing with the underserved or people who have now shifted into becoming a community much more in need than they were before. I was reading about another community that can be underserved, and these are the addicts that usually are homeless now because they spent their money on trying to get drugs. But these addicts are on the street, and in the past, there were centers where they could go and meet with doctors and counselors to talk about how they could get assistance. The proverbial methadone clinic, right? Among other things, and some of it was for people who were uh, addicted to opioids and they needed counseling for families because families were torn apart. And the actual wording in the statement issued by the director was that many of their clients have migrated from all these communities where this was happening in the suburbs too, they've migrated to Boston. They're not showing up at these clinics because the clinics are not open for that type of personal contact. What are they going to do? In this case, they are, have decided that they are going to send out counselors on bicycles to go into the streets to try and find the people that are not showing up, that have basically kind of fallen off the grid so they can provide assistance for them. There are doctors long distance or through an iPhone can give some directions or ask some questions about how to assist. But it's even the case of, would you do something that was formerly illegal, which is write a prescription for someone that you've never seen in order that they could be assisted with the medical complications of their being on drugs? These are certainly dilemmas that not any of us, I can't say that I would know how to deal with that, and I don't have the expertise, but they are occurring. And we have to think about the people that are maybe not being considered at all. I hate to admit this, but I was very upset by reading the fact that evidently, with all the PPE distribution throughout the world, that the United States and the EU Basically, because of the power that they hold and the status of the world, they can cut in line, so to speak, to get these supplies above other countries who may have put in their orders to receive certain supplies. As much as very much I was dismayed the other day to hear one of the people in our current administration say that if states are having trouble getting PPEs and other supplies, they should look for their own resources because the stockpile of the United States is ours. It's the government's, but not to be distributed among the what? states. And when I heard that, I'm thinking, did I mishear that? <laughs> is this America? <laughs> or is this putting more responsibility on governors? Well, in our state, our governor, Governor Baker, contracts with the owner of the Patriots to go and get one of his airplanes, one of his jets, right. fly to China and get a million masks and bring them over to the United States. Shifts, these shifts occurring in, wait a minute, these are shifts of who has responsibility for the underserved? Who has responsibility for getting supplies into the state? Who has responsibility for the people who are unseen but are just as needy in a country that I'd like to think 
still maintains a certain integrity about its humanity with people who are within our borders. Jim, you you started speaking about two things, two two concepts that talk about new eyes. Think of this: a, a, a counselor or a or a doctor, a psychiatrist who has to now get a bike or get on a bike and go into. You know, it gives the the social worker that where you think about them driving to a different side of town to do their their study it gives that a whole new view now. Oh, they're going to get on a bike to go treat someone to to see it. I, I mean, we're having to adjust to. Oh, this is nice. My my doctor is going to has implemented telemedicine, so now I can call him up or we can FaceTime or get on Zoom and. Uh, he can say, okay, how you doing, Bob? And, you know, okay, here's your prescription for the net. Isn't that nice? But what about the underserved? That's just, that's a fascinating concept of a migration, of a change, of a shift, where how are we going to, to treat people? And you hear the story of, of uh, the mayor of Chicago driving around telling people to go back home. It's not fine yet. It's not, it's not safe. This is a, a different time. But like you say, when we're thinking about these these different dilemmas of what these people are faced with it's it's definitely a, a different world and i think it, you know it's almost like we have to have more than new eyes we we have to we have to take on a new identity we have to be able to shift our own selves into a a different light into a different way into a different idea there has to be a way to reinvent ourselves i i can't think of any other way to to say it or as a society we're going to have to reinvent how we do things across the board if this is indeed our pearl harbor well maybe it means in an extreme or not such an extreme about shifting to a war mentality and transferring those ideas into people like myself who here in our area say well now you're curfewed from nine to six it hasn't happened here locally or in our neighborhoods yet, but I'm reading about in Kenya where people who are hungry, this is the poor on the streets there that maybe don't have the same access to social services like the United States, but food is brought in to be distributed by the government and there's violence. There's people fighting over the food. There's people that are being accusatory and making the police feel the government feel that they're not distributing enough food. Or in the Paris suburbs, is the suburbs of Paris, where people who are now confined to multi-story skyscrapers and buildings, high rises, are just getting restless. They just feel like they're confined. They don't have anything to do. You know, when we talked earlier about this shift of all these masses of people and students and doctors and everybody to the internet. Exactly. Connectivity. Yes. We're assuming people have the internet. If you don't have access to the internet, is this going to be what is causing some of those clashes in, in the suburbs of Paris, the banlieues, uh, that are causing unrest and now openly clashing with police? Again, I haven't experienced that here, but I have to ask myself about Going back to what you were saying is, how much do we have to project ourselves into some of these future scenarios that haven't happened here, but could? It's happening here in San Antonio already. 
in some of the poorer school districts where there is a problem with, as they say, connectivity, access to the internet. And I just have to think in the past three weeks, how many kids, children, students, elementary, middle school, high school, how many kids have just gone without learning anything or having any school? Because think about that for, well, for a couple of days, has it been a couple of weeks? Are there some kids that well, I haven't been able to have, you know, talk to my teacher in a, in two weeks in spring break. What's, what's happening? What is going to ha- happen to those families are poor and uneducated. Is the gap going to, to widen? Is there going to be, well, you know, well, what happens when you can't have something after a while you forget about it, you go, okay, well, all right, I can't go to school. So I have to do something else. So I'm going to learn in a different way. I'm going to find a, a different route or a different, take a different job or say, well, you know, edu- I'm not going to be able to go to high school like I had planned or be the first one in my family to get a college degree. Talk about dilemmas. Those are, those are some far reaching things. And, and I'm, I don't want to say or make it sound like no one's doing anything about it because there are companies, AT&T included, where we are making efforts and there are uh, local, even the local uh, San Antonio government is trying to help people that don't have access. And it's not unique to San Antonio. And you mentioned the high-rise facilities and, and apartments and condos in Paris and, and across the country and uh, the, the stir craziness, the, uh, what do you call it when you're locked in for, for a long time? You just get a little bit of uh, cabin fever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cabin fever. Yes. And, and so uh, seven o'clock at night when there's the medical shift change or, or the, the nurses and doctors are, are going to the hospitals People in the big cities are opening their windows and uh, banging on pots and pans as a as a tribute to uh, uh, or singing songs or playing karaoke or something to to uh, give support. There, there's a lot of good coming out of it, also, but there's problems and challenges and dilemmas that we're all facing that just haven't been here before. And and you just have to step back and think, wow, what a what a different episode, what a different thing that we're talking about when we thought, well, yeah, we're going to be talking about the you know the Texas border or the or the southern United States border and the and the wall. Who cares, right? Now? <laughs> no one cares about the wall anymore. You know, before we get to considering agency and how we, as a nation, as a community, as a town, as a family, as a neighbor, respond. I have to ask myself as I'm looking around and saying, "Where are all the people?" And I'm reading about all these shifts that have occurred in society. Some things are not moving, such as oil. They're trying to cut the flow of oil up to 4 million barrels a day because the market had shifted and they want to stop the oil flow to save the market because of the economics of that. I was reading about divorced couples who have custody agreements to go along with. Well, if you are, if we are in isolation or self-quarantine, then it means that some kids are not going to be able to move over to the mother or to the father because it was their weekend or their week during spring break, which we have coming up. And of course, who can forget all those poor, poor singles out there that can't date? <laughs> exactly. I was just reading about this. 
and people are saying we can't date and it's not enough just to go on Zoom. We can't go to the club. We can't meet someone new in person and make judgments about them. You can't even meet for lunch. Wasn't there a thing called it's just lunch where you could have a professional lunch with a person of uh, of the opposite sex if you wanted to and just have a nice. There you go. You can. This may be the biggest non-movement of all because here in the Jones residence at number 72, very important to my wife, is I can't get to the hairdresser. Oh, yes. I can't get to someone who can help me deal with hair. Something as essential as how we look. The barbers. I was watching someone today in in one of the news shows. They're Zooming with the barber because they want to know so that they won't use a pair of clippers. And is what happened uh, uh, within our family with a family member cut a big chunk of hair out of the back of their head. You know, it's a lot is stopped. My my wife's hairdresser uh, sent a card to all of her clients uh, two weeks ago and said, yes, you know, I know you're going to be doing this. You're going to be self-quarantining, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you do, do not cut your hair. Do not attempt to cut your hair. Wait, it will it will be fine. But uh, uh, yeah, that's a and of course, men will be there in a, in a couple of weeks or, you know, yeah, we can grow a beard and all of that for a while or, you know, we can let our hair grow. But uh, there are some of us, if you let your hair grow, it you take on a whole new personality. You have to start considering things like uh, ponytails and uh, et cetera, you know, to to uh, accentuate, which this is a, a good lead in since we're talking about the little lighter side of the topic is with all of this zooming and, and working from home. There was a Reddit post recently where we're finding out things about our roommates, spouses, and significant others that we didn't quite know was there. And I, I thought this was just hilarious. Uh, so I'm just going to read a couple of these that were, were posted. Funny thing about quarantine is you hear your, your, your significant other say, okay, let's circle back. And I, who, who knew my, my uh, husband was a circle back guy or... Uh, the first time I saw a work husband, I was thrilled to find out that he was a, I don't think Laura was done speaking guy. Uh, the, another one is, uh, hearing my wife in meetings, especially with subordinates. And it dawns on me that she uses the personal management techniques on me all the time. (laughs) People are finding out, uh, these work identities of their, of their significant others, uh, that they really didn't realize, uh, existed before. It's, uh, it's a whole new world. They, they certainly have uh, new eyes, if not, uh, uh, they certainly have new eyes to their relationship, right? Who are we when we're at the office? Who are we when we're with our family? Who are we with only our all-male friends at the bar on a Friday having a beer? This whole idea of identity and how we shift is certainly fascinating, but I think one of the major elements of what you're saying is that very much when we say, and I'm going to go back to it again, this is our Pearl Harbor. I'm going to ask an identity question. How will this define us? How will not being able to open businesses and get the economy running again define us? What will we look at? And we might need to have new eyes to be prepared to look ahead and maybe not always find what we see easily shifted to 
easily accepted and perhaps something that will be a huge gap for us, some of us, to leap over. It's just a time when there's lots of of self-reflection and there's also, through all of this, this enormity of what we're facing. I've read recently where it's a lot like you're you're facing something that's that this isn't different like like you said this is this is our pearl harbor this is our 911 but we can't see the attack it's invisible so there's no normalcy in that there's this fear of the economy and and you talked about oil there's also closer to texas and in the and in the plains of the united states the the farming industry the cheese industry stories of farmers having to pour out their cow's milk because the demand has gone down oh okay we've made that point it's certainly different but we're experiencing grief and collectively we're going through those stages of denial anger bargaining sadness and maybe acceptance but as you mentioned, we're and as the, the, the gentleman who wrote this uh, article in the Harvard Business Review, Scott Ferentino, there's a sixth stage now, meaning. We're all looking for meaning. And, and we're finding that, you know, yes, we can't date or we can't meet for coffee or we can't go to the club, but we can have a karaoke night online. And as I mentioned earlier in the, in the uh, podcast about well, hey, we're, we're, we're finding out that uh, we can have a little more compassion. We can also look at technology and realize that, uh, hey, maybe we can use this phone for something more than just FaceTime or texting. We can actually have a long conversation with someone on the phone. And that's bringing more meaning to our lives. It's helping people to adjust to this, to this way and, and maybe move in a different direction. There's kind of a, a self-migration, if you will. You know, Bob, we had another immigration across our southern border for decades. And from that immigration into our country, there was migration from the border into cities and suburbs and towns. And I'm talking about drugs. Having spent some time on the border with the Border Patrol when I was with Immigration and Naturalization Service, I was exposed and had a chance to to see this, and it opened my eyes, maybe that's having new eyes, to the real issues. Now I look back, and this is almost the new normal. Yeah, we're going to be having drugs exposed to our children growing up, people who have money, athletes. This has become a new normal that certainly is ugly, repulsive maybe, to look at. But I have to think that there's going to be parts of our new normal as a society after this that are not going to be easy to swallow. I can't think of any one issue. There are so many. But I can think of how I might have some agency or respond to what is happening. For me, part of that agency is asking myself questions. It's asking me, because of what's happening Will I develop empathy for people that I don't have exposure to normally, but I know there might be some responsibility to provide for them? It might be asking myself, do we have the leadership that we need 
what am I looking for as I look to the next election for a president, for a governor, for a representative? What are my roles as a neighbor, as a citizen, as a parent, as an isolated person? Do I sit in my home and say, well, I, what can I do? I'm isolated. Or do I think of some ways that I can do something about what is happening around me? That's not going to be something that everybody can do because, quite frankly, they're involved with their three or four kids at home from school. They're involved with trying to make their budgets. They're involved with trying to find jobs while they're confined to their homes. It's overwhelming. As someone who I'd like to think tries to keep informed and look through this window onto our society with new eyes, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of my own agency. I think leadership is going to be a huge issue or a, I, I don't I don't even want to say issue. I, I think that's a quality. Maybe integrity, you could even say integrity is going to be even a more important topic and, and value and trait that we look for in our leaders. And it's it, it sounds like you're contradicting yourself. But does this particular person that we expect to be or we have considered in the past, well, they're a politician. Are they a good politician? Can they do well? And go? I think now we're going to be looking at them and saying, what are their leadership qualities? What are their capabilities? Have they been a leader before? How do they lead? Because I think we're seeing it now. And, you know, the obvious thing is the president, but but even taking it down to the local level, like you said, governors and mayors and and uh, local representatives, what decisions are they making? How are they leading in a time of stress and choice? Are they finding balance? Are, are, they, are, are they staying calm? Are they issuing edicts and laws and then having to go back and, and change it? That's going to be something that we're going to be looking at probably a little bit more closely. I hope anyway, that that is a, a value that's uh, um, not just accepted, but wanted a little bit more as, as we go forward. With our society changing, with our ability in a democratic society to participate, will people, I wonder, reinvent themselves as someone who actively gets out to support a candidate by making a call, by later on, hopefully, getting on the street to canvas door to door? Will this be a motivation for them to make those types of physical movements to make the democracy really work because of this experience that we've had. As someone who is also now shifted over to the internet, I'm finding a new identity of myself forged in the crucible of the internet. I kinda in some ways might have prided myself as being somewhat of a Luddite, as not having to submit totally or to a greater degree to what is happening online and in the internet. But perhaps that's a shift that I personally am going to make in terms of how we, how all of us, how I reinvent myself. It'll be interesting. It'll be in many ways exciting. It'll be in some cases discouraging, but it won't be boring. 
So because I want to be able to keep an eye on this, I'm going to keep my new eyes attuned to what I'm seeing in the news, as I hope you will too, Bob. Most definitely. I I recently, it was actually at our user experience uh, San Antonio uh, meeting this past Thursday, the first first full week in April 2020, where someone shared a, a video of Simon Sinek, I believe is how he says his last name, of, of uh, Ted Fame, who usually does the introductions and, and has given TED Talks and, and released uh, videos on and articles on how to give a TED Talk and the author of some books. But he actually recorded and shared a virtual meeting that he had with his team. And he said that we have to have this infinite mindset right now, not a finite mindset. We have to be in reinvention mode. Can you reinvent yourself? Can you do it with integrity? We're going to have a new identity if we're reinventing ourselves. And then he got very emphatic. And this is what I want to share. Uh, and of course, you can probably Google the, the, the YouTube video and, and watch it yourself. But he said, I'm not worried about what I do. I'm worried about why I do it. And he, and he even slammed his, his fist on the desk when he said it for emphasis. Why I do what I do. And it, it made me think exactly of what you said and what we've talked about. Who am I at this moment? And we, we've mentioned that earlier today as well. It, it doesn't matter if you're that doctor that's having to get on a bike now and go into the, to a socially distanced camp of individuals that are homeless or, wow, you're a public speaker that realizes, man, for the next five months, there aren't, there aren't or five weeks or maybe a couple of months, there aren't going to be any public gatherings where I can speak. There, there's, no, uh, there's no conference I can go to unless I'm able to do it online now or, or in front of the camera and online in a, in a, uh, uh, a web conference. We have to find a different way of doing what we do. And I just think that's powerful. He turned it around and said, yes, we're, we're in this tunnel, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And we have to look at this opportunity right now as being filled with possibilities. It's magical. We have to take advantage of that and come out on the other side as a better person, as a better teammate, as a better group whatever it is you are or whatever it is that you do, you have to change. That's the given. But how are you going to do it is the, is the question that's facing us. And it's the perfect ending of our season migrating to the melting pot, if you will, and looking at things now with a new conscience, with a new, definitely with new eyes. Totally, Bob. As a, someone who is a physical transplant from Texas to New England. I've had my own personal migration. Now my migration is into a new spiritual, emotional, mental mindset. And I'm enjoying having this dialogue with you because you're making me think. So I thank you. Thank you, Jim. I hope everyone uh, feels the same way and and takes it upon themselves to think, to think about things differently and look at things differently. Thanks so much for being part of this first season. And I, I hope I've enjoyed it as well. And I hope everyone has to. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. And we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas. Our goal, as Jim says, is to make you think. And after you've thought about each topic, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE and join us in the Season 1 Dialogue as we explore topics like identity, integrity, law enforcement, and immigration. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. HNE is recorded in San Antonio, Texas at the studios of Game Day Media Enterprises. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.